I'm Hannah Critchlow, and in this month's Naked Neuroscience podcast, we get naked in a brain bank. We'll be dipping down to a chilly minus 80 degrees C to find out about human brain donation, how a Hindu wrestles with conflicting beliefs between research and reincarnation, and we attempt to grasp the incredible scale of complexity of the human brain. Naked Neuroscience, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and the British Neuroscience Association. In last month's podcast, I took a trip to New Zealand to find out about Huntingdon's disease, or HD. My wife now, Heather, is um, in residential care. She has what has turned out to be a very aggressive form of Huntington's. It has affected not only um, her cognitive side and her mobility, but also her, um, her mental state. She started off with uh, not being able to handle stress. Even the smallest of issues could, um, could make her quite upset. Also, in terms of depression, she suffered from that a little as well. But it, just in the last six months, um, she's been you know, declining in terms of her mental state. And um, where she currently resides, there is between four and six people with Huntington's, and they all are so different. You've got one person that you just wouldn't, wouldn't realise. In fact, a GP probably wouldn't realise that they have um, HD. You've got other people that have the movement issues um, and you've got you know, people with the emotional and the cognitive issues. Um, unfortunately, uh, Heather has had all three and of course Heather having watched her mother go through um, what she's going through, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been really quite, quite tough on, on her. So. Thanks to Richard Price, who's talking about how his wife, Heather, has been affected by Huntington's. It's a complex disease that affects one in every 30,000 people worldwide. We found out how a change in a single gene is responsible for the myriad symptoms associated with Huntington's. I was one of the members of the group that found the gene now 20 years ago. On average, if you inherited this little track, you can imagine it as like a bicycle chain that gets longer. If the repeat is longer, then the age of onset is lower. So you can draw a curve. So if you are unfortunate enough to inherit a very long repeat, say over 60 or 70 units, then the age of onset tends to be younger than 20. How a genetic test can affect how people affected lead their life. She's 43 now. Um, she was tested when she was 18. And at that stage, they had only just discovered, you know, how to actually discover the gene um, and test for it. She was, you know, Heather's a very, um, you know, positive and proactive person. So she wanted to know whether she was going to have the, um, the symptoms um, uh, later on in life. So um, uh, it was quite tough, but she, um, you know, she, she got through it. In fact, it helped her knowing rather than not knowing. And do you think, did she ever mention that 
as a result of having this test and knowing that she was going to develop Huntington's down the line, do you think she led her life a little bit differently because of that? Definitely, definitely. In fact, that was, you know, her purpose. Um, everything from deciding to get a diploma rather than a degree, so rather than going to university, and uh, really just, uh, you know, getting into into the workforce and really just building up a nest egg. Uh, when the, the symptoms really started to, to appear, you know, she was able to manage that, um, understand it, um, and then make some decisions around it. So she always had planned on travelling. And, um, yeah, she sold her house um, and, and went travelling. Um, and I met up with her in, in London. So, yeah. Do you have children with Heather? No, no. Uh, that was another sort of decision that she had uh, made quite early on because of, it seems her family may be, you know, more prone to passing it down the line. Her brother has uh, has it as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Heather had a lot of time to sort of process and, and accept that and, you know, it's we're... Um, we were both of the same mind, so uh, we had dogs instead of uh, children. So, And I met brain scientists studying sheep to try to understand the disease. Sheep in a flock can be very silly. You get a sheep by itself working under controlled conditions. They perform very well. They're very intelligent. They're um, a little bit moody, but they understand things. They learn very quickly. And I've heard that you've even managed to get some of your sheep playing games of football. The sheep don't play football with each other, but I did teach sheep how to kick a ball into a goal because I'm looking for tasks of skill and motor coordination and I also wanted something that sheep didn't normally do. Now, sheep don't normally kick a football. If they see a football in a field, they would be afraid of it because it was weird. But I taught the sheep how to kick a football because I know that it's a good test of balance, coordination and skill. And how they're using genetically modified flocks of Huntington sheep to help develop new treatments for patients. In this show, we continue our quest, but this time finding out how New Zealanders are using a less quadrupedal approach to tackling Huntington's by looking at the human brain. We'll discover how a bank of frozen human brains is acting as a reference library and how scientists are creating human brain circuits in a dish in order to piece together the jigsaw of the disease. First up though, Professor Richard Fall and Dr Morris Curtis from Auckland University have set up a bank of frozen human brains. This contains hundreds of brains from Huntington's disease patients and also healthy controls from the general population. Their PhD student, Malvinda Singh Baines, discussed her personal belief dilemmas with the project. She has been raised a practicing Hindu, a religion with strict funeral rituals. After death, Hindu bodies are cremated traditionally near a river, for example the Ganges, and this cremation is important for the transmigration of the soul from one body to another for reincarnation. Before this though, she took me on a tour of the research facilities. Okay, and now we're going to go into the Neurological Foundation of New Zealand Human Brain Bank. Long, long title, but we call it the Human Brain Bank over here. And if you just walk this way, and we have all our brain bank freezers isolated in rooms. No gloves on doors. So just through the door. 
We've entered into the Brain Bank room. So it's got a massive freezer in here, which is humming away. You might be able to hear it. And there's also a fume cupboard over there where I'm presuming some dissection can take place into very clean conditions. Um, can, you, can you open up the Brain Bank and show us I some of the samples? Indeed. And the freezer's opening up now, and it's minus 80 degrees centigrade, so it's keeping the brains in a very cold condition to preserve uh, the tissue and all the proteins and the genes that are there. Absolutely, and we have a few of these freezers. So we have the tissue stored in um, these columns that are kept in the minus 80 freezer, and they're all designated with a number, and they're all coded specifically. We don't know who these cases belong to for security purposes and also for patient confidentiality. The tissue is kept in these biohazard bags. Just open up one of them. So here we have one tissue block. We've designated it a case of H131. So in this case I've picked out a normal one and we've also got the block number on it. So SM4 stands for Sensory Motor Block 4. So that's sensory motor cortex. Yes. So it's a band of your brain which runs kind of from ear to ear. If you imagine having a hairband on or an Alice band, that's roughly about where the sensory motor cortex would be. And the sensory motor cortex is involved in uh, processing all of the sensory information that comes in through our body. So, for example, sense of touch, sense of temperature and a sense of self as well, I yep. think. Absolutely. Sensory motor cortex is probably one of the most important cortical regions. And so can we open this sample without jeopardizing the integrity of the tissue, but open it and just have a quick look? Absolutely. So we have each of our blocks that are wrapped in foil. So we snap freeze them using dry ice. I think this one has a few layers on it. And we're unraveling now the block of human brain tissue. So this is a fresh piece of tissue and you can actually see the, the gyri. You can see, yeah, so the, the brain, the human brain, has these folds in it which almost make it look like a walnut. And you can, I can see now the, all of the gyri, so those like little folds coming into the brain, um, which almost look like, I don't know, like a riverbed that's um, flowing into the, into the brain with little bits of blood, which that's how the brain gets its um, blood kind of supply and the oxygen rushing to it. And I can see the really intricate details there in this frozen block of tissue. It's quite quite awe-inspiring actually so that's a, a part very, of some it's very real you know when you when you see the brain this way you know that this is such a precious precious gift from a person and you can even see the little tiny vessels on the top of the meninges if you look very carefully you can see the little capillaries and that's how the brain gets its oxygen through these little capillaries this through this vasculature which um, lies on the, almost the surface of the brain you can even see the separation between the gray and the white matter so the grey matter contains all the bodies of the cells, of the neurons, and then the white matter contains all their processes. So all of the connections come through the white matter here, and it's just very distinct. We haven't even stained the tissue. You can get so much information just from one block. It's beautiful. Thank you. And a um, quick question. Would you donate your brain for medical research for this type of study? Absolutely. I think the care that we take into the processing of every single um, block of tissue and just the brain as a whole, we treat these brains like as if it was our grandparents or our parents and I would certainly donate my brain with the knowledge of how well we treat the tissue here.
with, with the Indian culture, uh, certain different cultural groups amongst Indians, the Indian population, um, we have beliefs of uh, that the blood of our body is sacred and our organs are sacred, that the tissue is sacred. And this is why um, when a person passes away, we practice the art of cremating. So in other words, giving everything back to the earth, so sending our ashes into the ocean, and then passing on to the other side. So the sensitive topic of tissue donation, i.e. leaving a part of yourself on earth, is, is very, very different um, for Indians. So for me, I've actually had an internal cultural battle as well. I actually wasn't allowed to donate blood at a point. And now... Because of your family's wishes? Yes, because of the, the cultural commitments and also um, the family understanding there that you know blood is sacred. I've brought my parents to the centre and shown them firsthand what we do. And also um, my parents can see how precious the information is. It's, it's almost as if that knowledge has armed them with the understanding that we can actually learn so much from what we have. Thanks, Malvinda. Now over to Dr. Morris Curtis, Deputy Director of this Brain Bank, on some of the results from the samples to date. So um, one of the things I've been interested in are the stem cells in the brain. These are cells that have the capacity to divide and become any other cell type in the whole body, actually. But in this case, in the brain, they would normally go on to become either um, glial cells, which are the supporting cells of the nervous system, or uh, neurons, which are kind of the active unit of the brain. And these stem cells, we'd always thought, were very uh, important during the development of the brain. In fact, it's those stem cells that produce about 160 billion neurons in the course of about four or five weeks when we are developing in utero. But once you're born, the thought has always been that you don't have any more stem cells in the brain. So the number of cells in your brain that you are born with, people used to think that that was it for life. So if you have any trauma or if you do any damage to your brain, then you can't replace those cells. That was the traditional hypothesis. That's right. That's what I was taught uh, when I first started out in university. Only a few years later, and I can still remember where I was standing when I read the paper uh, in 1998, uh, which indicated a paper that showed uh, unequivocally that the brain produces new brain cells. That was um, staggering to me, and I thought, I have to know more about this. And so we were actually interested in the Huntington's disease brain for the reason that the area that the stem cells reside is exactly next door, right, uh, their neighbours, right next door to the area that actually degenerates in Huntington's disease. So you've got this um, interesting situation where in Huntington's disease, the regenerative area and the degenerative area are neighbours, they're right next to each other. So the, the areas that we're um, referring to when we say the stem cell area is an area called the subventricular zone. It sits right next to the lateral ventricle in the brain. That's the fluid-filled space in the middle of the brain. Just next to the subventricular zone is the caudate nucleus, and the caudate nucleus is the area that degenerates in Huntington's disease, and it normally in, is involved with mood and movement, and hence people with Huntington's disease have problems with um, movement, and also um, they can have mood disturbances. And so we were interested to see whether or not the area that is responsible for regenerating the brain, uh, at least during development, was upregulated, or whether more stem cells were born in that area in response to the area next door, the caudate nucleus, degenerating. And so we used some special stains, and what we found was that the more degeneration that was occurring in the caudate nucleus, 
the more regenerating cells or the more stem cells we found in the area next door, the subventricular zone. So it's kind of almost the opposite of what you might expect. Yeah, that's right. So you might naturally think it would go the other way. But if you if you think about how skin repairs itself, when you cut yourself, you'd think, well, that's going to kill off the cells. But actually what it does is it gets the stem cells engaged and they come along and they repair it. And within a few weeks, you're left with just a small scar, but not, a, not an open wound anymore. Of course, the brain isn't nearly as um, able to cope with insults, but the process is similar, just on a smaller scale. So what's going wrong with the patients with Huntington's disease then? So they're having more degeneration in this particular area of the brain, and, but they're trying to compensate with this regeneration. But why isn't, it, why isn't it happening properly so that those regenerating cells are properly getting down into that region, making the circuits and replacing those lost cells? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of problems there, I suppose, that the brain has to overcome. Unlike skin, which are relatively simple cells, the neurons are highly specialised, very, very specialised. And they've actually done their job successfully for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and they've learnt it. We're then asking stem cells to come along and just replace these cells that have done their job well for a long time. And asking these stem cells to find the right place to connect up with is actually quite a big ask. It's a case of too little, too late. And so we don't really get the true regeneration that um, would be nice to be seen there. So is there some genetic reason for why they, these new regenerating cells aren't recircuiting or getting into the circuit properly as well? Is that something to do with the genetics of Huntington's? We don't know. That's, uh, we certainly don't have a lot of information about that. What we do know is that some of the abnormalities that occur in cells with Huntington's disease actually affect stem cells less. So, for instance, the Huntington protein, which abnormally accumulate in Huntington's disease, that normally is a real problem for neurons. And it accumulates because the neurons are very old and they don't have such good ways of being able to get rid of those um, abnormal proteins, the Huntington. In stem cells, they actually don't accumulate the Huntington. Cells that are dividing don't seem to accumulate these abnormal proteins that occur later in life with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and Huntington's. So the stem cells seem to have a window of being uh, immune to these problems and part of it is just the fact that they're regenerating. So is, is this finding, will it lead to maybe a treatment where you can start using these stem cells which won't accumulate these misfolded or improper proteins and somehow make sure that they do make the proper connections and kind of get themselves in place in the circuit properly in order to help cure or treat Huntington's and other disorders as well like Alzheimer's. That's certainly always been um, the desire is to be able to get new cells in there, a cell replacement therapy essentially. What I guess we've learnt from um, other cell re replacement therapy approaches is that getting one group of cells that you put into the brain to connect up with the right target cells is actually quite tricky. Um, it certainly has been done a lot in the past. And the hope is that using endogenous stem cells, the brain can direct it themselves and we just help the brain out. Uh, so that's certainly one of the goals. You know, we, we want to know more about how is it that you actually get the brain cells to do what they would naturally do and connect up in the right places. But part of that is actually understanding what it is that drives a stem cell to make a projection to actually look for a place to connect up with elsewhere. And so we're studying those features currently.
Maurice Curtis on how a bank full of frozen human brains can tell us about Huntington's disease. And if you would also like to donate your body and brain to research, further information and links are on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. And have a look for the show called Naked in a Brain Bank. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast, reporting from New Zealand with me, Hannah Critchlow, and in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. And Professor Mike Dragono, also based at Auckland University, is able to culture these stem cells from the brain bank. As well as this, he gets brain tissue donated from epilepsy patients who have elected to have surgery to cut out brain tissue to help control their seizures. He harvests this tissue and grows these cells in a Petri dish, forming a brain network. I started by asking him how similar these cells in a dish are to a conscious, real living brain. Can you really compare the two? Well, it's always a challenge, actually, because once you grow them in a dish, you're already a very much artificial environment. But what we can do is we can use markers for the different cell types that we know are present in the brain and see whether those markers exist in the cells and the dishes, and they do. And so what we're trying to do really is understand how those human brain cells function, their basic biology, because we can test that. So we're looking at understanding how human brain cells that are involved in a number of neurological disorders, how they behave, how they, you know, their biochemistry. And also we're, we're testing compounds directly on those human brain cells. Now one of the big problems in the neurosciences really is that compounds developed in model systems haven't actually translated to humans. So you have medications that work wonderfully in transgenic models of Alzheimer's disease in mice, for example, that cure the mice of, those, of, of Alzheimer's. And yet, so far at least, none of those compounds have worked effectively in humans with Alzheimer's. And the approach we're taking, I suppose, is to try and, t try and take a more direct approach. If we can actually understand first the biology of the cells and secondly, use those cells to test drugs, the drugs that work on the human brain cells in the dish may, we don't know if they will, but they may be effective in real humans that are living. So what we've been doing really is learning how to grow the cells, defining the different types of cells, and some cells grow better than others. There's a, this dividing cell population that we do freeze down because they, they bulk up. It turns out that these dividing cells, we're not 100% sure, we're about 95% sure now through a number of different techniques, um, genetic techniques and facts sorting. Sorry, facts sorting. Is that facts as in like faxing something, F transfer of information there? No, it's, it's sorting. It's a, a, it's a sort of flow, it's a flow cytometry. It allows you to actually sort cells on the basis of certain markers on their surface and that's that we use that to try and identify what sort of cells you have using the, the these approaches we think we're pretty sure that these cells that we're growing in bulk here are called brain pericytes now the pericyte actually is a very old cell but a very very understudied and under understood cell really because what it does it actually lines blood vessels in the brain, actually, there are, there, there's actually a, a large number of pericytes. And one of their functions in the brain to line blood vessels is to maintain the blood-brain barrier. Now, this barrier is very important because molecules in the body, in the blood, there are certain molecules you don't want to get into the brain. And so the brain has this privilege, this blood-brain blood barrier. The pericytes maintain the barrier, and we now know through work by a number of researchers around the world that the blood-brain barrier breaks down in a number of neurological disorders, especially in Alzheimer's. 
And so the so these parasites and this blood-brain barrier really stops any toxins entering the brain that might might cause damage to the brain and therefore cause any behavioural problems like seen in Alzheimer's or Huntington's, for example. That's right, yeah. And so people think that once that barrier breaks down, toxins can get into the brain. They can actually add to directly to, directly to the nerve cell um, degeneration, but they can also activate immune cells in the brain to cause inflammation. We need to study more the human versions of these inflammatory cells in the brain, the microglia and the astrocytes directly. Which is why it's so important to get these samples from the brain, the human brain bank tissue and also from the surgery. It, it's, it's amazing really and you know our work really is driven by the amazing generosity of the patients who are undergoing surgery and also the donations that, that people with um, fatal brain disorders give to the to the brain bank it's incredible and their families and they really drive our work and they also motivate you as a scientist when you're studying human brain cells you're much more motivated to try and and, and understand and provide some useful answers and say so that so that's our approach really by studying human brain cells by testing drugs directly on them our hope is to identify molecules that will work in humans to help reduce and stop the progression of some of these terrible disorders so a whole host of brain disorders show an altered immune system, where the brain is effectively being attacked by its body's own defence system. Cases of schizophrenia, depression, Alzheimer's and Huntington's all involve the brain being almost on fire with inflammation. And Mike is now working on trying to come up with molecules that will dampen down this heightened inflamed response and repair the brain in the hope that this will lead to new treatments for patients. Next, I speak with Professor Richard Fall, who set up this Brain Research Centre at Auckland University, to find out how researching Huntington's disease is also helping us to grasp the incredible scale of complexity of the human brain. So Huntington's disease was generally thought to be a simple disease because it was caused by one gene. And why there has been so much attention on this gene scientifically and on this disease was the simple idea that if we could solve this disease by working out what this one gene defect caused, then we could solve diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and neuron disease, which were uh, multiple gene diseases. Well, it just so happens that we now know that this single gene disease, Huntington's disease, is a very complicated disease because it actually causes dysregulation and upset of at least a quarter of all the genes. We have 45,000 genes in each cell. And depending on what part of the brain it is, will upset different combinations of these other genes, you see. That's why you get all the different symptoms. And so genetics is a very complex science now. We thought it was a simple science when I was at school, and that this gene would do just one thing. It doesn't. The gene makes a protein. That protein interacts with other genes and causes them to change their function or change their pattern of protein production. So there is a sort of a, an effect which, which is, spreads like wildfire in variable ways, and, and the variation is affected by the environment. And so we know that people in different environments, even with the same gene, will result in different patterns of brain degeneration and symptoms. And Huntington's disease has taught us the fundamental principles of and that the human brain is more complex than what we ever, ever imagined. We can't explain a human thought. We can't explain what a sudden burst of 
genius is. And we are beginning to unravel that. But it's almost as if we climb to the top of Mount Everest thinking we're going to solve this disease and then we see all the Himalayas before us which are even higher. And that's the challenge of doing brain research. There's going to be several lifetimes of work to unravel the human brain and what it all. And this disease has actually led us along that path. Thanks to Richard Fool. And we close the Naked Down Under show series with some of the Auckland scientists' favourite jokes. Well, it's, uh, it's someone bringing back a parrot to a pet shop in one of the old Monty Python movies. And, um, and uh, the owner of the pet shop is trying to convince the person bringing it back that it actually is alive and isn't, um, isn't dead at all, as the owner believes. And uh, they're just to and fro. It's a fantastic, uh, fantastic skit. I can only remember one. It's really terrible. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it's my daughter's joke. Mm. What's green and goes up? I don't know. What's green and goes up? A cucumber in an elevator. <laughs> my favourite joke is a kid joke, um, and it's one that my wife just hates when I tell. It's, where do you find a legless tortoise? And the answer, of course, is where you left it. It's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> Scientists don't really do humour. We're not a normal cross-section of the population. <laughs> And that's all we have time for. Thanks to all those in the New Zealand Naked Scientist series. That's Richard Fool, Richard Price, Lynette Tippett, Russell Snell, Jenny Morton and Eliza McGregor, Malvinda Singh-Baines, Morris Curtis and Mike Drugano. You can find the full transcript for this episode and others in the series at nakedscientists forward slash neuroscience. And if you have any questions or comments, then do get in touch at hannah at thenakedscientists.com. And you can find The Naked Scientists on Facebook and Twitter. See you next month to continue the journey to open our minds. <laughs>